Anybody have a morning routine? Maybe you don't stick to it exactly, but you've got a routine, or there's some things that you do every morning when you wake up. I've, I've got one. When I wake up, I usually have my 32-ounce tumbler Yeti next to me, and the, the water's cold by now because I put it in the night before, and I began drinking about 32 ounces of water. Like, I'm breaking my fast, so I need some water, and I also need my water because something's coming next. I'm getting up, and I go to the kitchen drinking my water, and I take last year's Christmas gift to my wife and I, which these are big things when you get older, I guess. Uh, the, the electric boiler, this is a huge deal when you're, when you're making stuff, you're boiling water. So I get about two liters worth of water, put it in that thing, plug it in, and it begins to boil. And then I go over and grab my light roast HEV premium coffee grounds, and I, of course, grind them up about 10 or 12 seconds. And then I put them in my gift this year, I put them in my new not glass, French press, but stainless steel, 1.5 liter, because we're drinking more coffee, uh, French press. And I put those grounds in there, and then the water finished boiling, and let it sit for a minute, and Weston's over there going, ah, you're doing it wrong, um, our coffee people. And I pour the coffee, the hot water into the grounds, and I let it sit five or six minutes, and then I have get my wife some coffee, have a nice cup of coffee. But what's really going on, listen, I like coffee, but I really need the caffeine, or I think I do. I'm dependent upon that shot of caffeine in the morning to get me going. And I know, I know some of you are going to grab me after church and go, hey, here's how you stop. I don't really want to stop because I enjoy the taste of coffee. (laughs) And And it helps me in the morning, but the truth of the matter is, Joking aside, I'm dependent. I need it to function in the morning, especially when my kids start school at 7 o'clock and we're up at like 5 or they are. I need it. I'm dependent upon it. Dependency is this. Relying upon or being controlled by something or someone. So I turn to you now. How about you? You got any substance like that in your life? Any coffee any tea, any Dr. Pepper, or maybe something less acceptable or more harmful than that, alcohol, or something else like nicotine or a pill that's wrapped its claws in you in ways that you wish it didn't. But if you don't have, then it creates chaos in your life. Dependency. We all have dependencies, and perhaps it's not some kind of substance. Perhaps it's someone. Perhaps There's someone in your life that you have unrealistic expectations for or someone in your life that you lean on. It's not like people in our life shouldn't be leaned on, but there's an unhealthiness, unhealthy dependence upon other people in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's your kid, maybe it's your parents. Or maybe it's not someone, but it's something. Maybe it's screen time. Now I'm getting up in our stuff, right? Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's the hits that you get on your social media post. Maybe it's your status amongst your peers or what you think your status or power or money or control or need for pleasure is. What are you dependent on? And you may say, well, not all dependencies are bad, right? I mean, 32 ounces of water in the morning is not a bad thing. You need water. You need air. You know what else you need? By God's good design. By God's good design, 
as people made in his image, we are to be dependent people upon him. That's how he's created us. He's created us. To say things like David said, the only thing I desire that I seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord. And yet there are things of earth that distract us from our desperate need of the Lord, aren't there? One of the expressions, for the Christian anyway, one of the expressions of our dependency upon the Lord is prayer. Where we're simply humbling ourselves before God and declaring who he is and asking him to do what we can't do. I can't think of a better way to begin 2023, a more fruitful way, church, to begin 2023 calling us as a church to be dependent upon the Lord. We're going to talk later about some metrics and the things that God is doing in the life of our church, but I can't think of a better way to go, hey, how are we going to be more dependent upon God this year in prayer, more reliant upon him? How are we going to grow in dependency on our needs? There's a quote I ran across about prayer this week, and it went like this. When we pray, we're breathing the air of heaven, but we're living amidst sewage gas. We're living amidst sewage gas, but we can breathe the air of heaven. See, that's kind of the way praying is. You ever get out of I-45 and 1488 and all the fumes and all the smells and you drive further out 105 or you go somewhere, you go to Colorado, go to Montana, you go somewhere. When I turn left off of Highway 71 in the middle of nowhere and go down County Road 405 to our place, the first thing my kids would tell you I do is roll down the window and breathe the fresh air. And that's what prayer is. Here's the challenge. The, the challenge is, is that it's often hard to get away from the fumes, isn't it? Outside the muck, but once you do, it's hard to leave. And that's what cultivating a prayer life really does. It helps you breathe the air of heaven while living in the muck. And I'll confess to you before we begin this five-week series that I need this. You can ask my wife, or don't, my kids, you can ask the people closest to me, I need to cultivate a dependence upon prayer because I think I can do it myself. And so I'm not alone in this. I'm not looking at you as a church and saying, hey, this is what I see. I'm looking at my own life and going, Lord, make me more dependent. I'm independent. Make me more dependent. Put me on my knees, humbling. Humble me. You ever prayed that dangerous prayer? I want to take you to Jesus' class, a class that he has for disciples on prayer for the next four, actually five weeks. And I want to show you how the Son of God tells the children of God to talk to God the Father. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be in verses 5 through about 15 over about five weeks. And I thought that was kind of ambitious when I started studying to go, hey, I'm going to do five weeks and I only got like eight verses or something. And there's more there than that. We could do a lot more weeks in Matthew 6. Maybe you look at this passage as you're turning there. It's page 811. You got the words up here. You're turning there and you're remembering. You're remembering... This text is what we often call 
or people often call the Lord's Prayer. And it is the Lord's Prayer in the sense that he teaches his disciples how to pray it, but the truth is Jesus would never pray many aspects of this prayer. So in that sense, it's not the Lord's Prayer at all. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't have debts. But it is the prayer that he calls, not specifically, but the elements and the pattern of prayer that he calls us to. I don't think there's anything magical about these words, but I do think the elements and patterns in this prayer teach us much about how to pray. Matthew chapter 6. We'll primarily be in verses 5 through 10 today, and we'll see why prayer is so essential. And we also will see this morning, where does prayer start? Where ought prayer start would be a better way to say it. Matthew 6, let me read it. I'm going to begin in verse 5. And when you pray, here's what you don't do, according to Jesus. You must not be like the hypocrites. Talking about the Pharisees, scribes, giving them a hard time. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What? The applause of men. But when you pray, disciples, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who's in secret it. Jesus is not saying corporate prayer is bad. He's just saying, don't do it like them. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7. And when you pray, here's another one, do not heap upon empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They just talk and talk and talk, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the implication is they're just heaping on more needs and needs and needs to their prayers. But then he says this phrase, pray in this way. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beautiful word. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Look back at verses 5 through 9. There's a repeated phrase that Jesus says to his disciples about how they ought not pray or how they should pray. Do you notice the word when? It's not the word if. It's the word when. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. And then he says, pray in this way. Prayer to Jesus is assumed. And if you know the history of the nation Israel, you know that, that prayer it was just like breathing. They prayed, they gave, they fasted. It was just part of a normal life for any Israelite to pray. Not just pray in private, but pray in public. And what they had done is they had twisted it into not the applause of heaven, and the reward that comes from knowing him, they had twisted it into their applause. I want to be seen by people. And Jesus says, well, you'll get a reward for that for sure, but it won't be from me. People will think that you are great. And so Jesus assumes for his disciples that they are praying, but then he says that phrase in verse 9, if you look at it, pray in this way. Why is he saying that? 
If you turn over to Luke chapter 11, it's the one other place where you see the Lord's Prayer. And Luke 11, 1 gives us some information, some background information about this. Why is Jesus teaching them to pray? Here's what the text says. It says in verse 1, Luke 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. He did that a lot. And when he had finished, one of the disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's an odd statement. What I just said was is that everybody in Israel prayed. And yet here's a disciple of Jesus observing Jesus pray, and he says, Lord, teach us to pray. That's an odd statement. He already knows how to pray, but there's something Jesus, uh, different about Jesus' pray. There's something different about the way Jesus prays and his motives for prayer and what he does. Notice in the Gospels how much the God-man, the Son of God, Son of Man, prays out of his need for his Father. It's not a need like you and I have, but he certainly prays. He models prayer for his disciples, and his disciples say, I want you to teach me how to do it that way. And he's God. And you might say, why does Jesus need to pray? Jesus prayed when in times of distress. He prayed after long days of ministering to people, and he got a way to do it. He prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail, and then he would turn and strengthen his brother's he prayed before the disciples were sent out on mission to make disciples. He prayed, giving thanks for food, for God's provision, the Father's provision before they ate. He prayed, and I think the Lord's Prayer, if you want to go look it up, is John chapter 17. That's the Lord's Prayer, that he's praying to the Father. It's a beautiful prayer. It's probably one of my favorite texts in all of the New Testament, John 17, where he prayed that, the Father would keep the disciples in his name, that the Father would give them joy and protection and sanctify them and unify them and love them and give them eternal life. And you know, the last prayer were the last words of Jesus. He comes to the cross and he says, thy will be done. Please take this from me, but your will be done. And he died and it was finished. You see, Jesus modeled prayer. You know, you know when we do this deal where we say about our Christian life, when there's a call, either from a pastor or a friend or in our own family, we're talking about sanctification, walking this Christian life, and we're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we're supposed to conform more and more to the image of Christ, that it's this growth process, and throughout our life we're trying to pursue Christ more. That's called sanctification. That's being set apart for him. And it's hard. It's not easy. What we often do with that in times where we say, well, Jesus said this or Jesus did this, what do we say? Well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> you ever said that? I've said that. And you know what? The first part of that is true. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. And there's grace in that. The Spirit works in that and helps us get back on the path. But oftentimes when we say that phrase, well, I'm not Jesus, what's implied? What's implied is, I don't need to pursue this. It's okay. God's grace is sufficient for me. I'm just going to let him go. Here's the thing. If Jesus, y'all, if Jesus, the Son of God, who is perfect, if he needed to pray, if he was dependent upon his Father for prayer constantly, 
How much more do you and I need to be on our knees dependent upon the Lord, our Father who art in heaven? Amen? So let me ask you, are you living? Are you living like you need the fresh air of heaven that the Father needs as bad as you really need to? Are you living that way? Are you living, waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, I need you? Are you asking as you read the scriptures and you observe Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to pray? Teach me how to pray. Or maybe you're going, man, I got this. That's where I end up. I'm going to throw up some prayers, but I got this. I can do it. And if I need you, I'll call you. See, cultivating prayer and a prayer life begins with realizing our desperate need of our heavenly Father that Jesus models for us. But maybe you say this. And you're right. Prayer is an automatic. It's not like when I come to know Jesus, then all of a sudden I get this download into the internal hard drive of how to pray. So I still need to know how to do it. What does it look like? I mean, effectively, it's just talking to God. I want you to hear that. And yet Jesus shows us more. Like disciples, here's how you do it. Here's how you pray. So look at the first lesson in the first class from Jesus on prayer. That's where we're going to go this morning And there's like six sermons in this. That doesn't mean I'm going to go forever. But there's a lot here to unpack. Your first thought is this that I've already unpacked. Dependence upon God in prayer is a non-negotiable need for disciples of Jesus, for you and for me. It's a non-negotiable need. And out of that is this. If you look at verse 9 and verse 10, Your second thought this morning is this. Dependence upon God in prayer starts with praise. It starts with praise. It doesn't start with gimme, gimme, gimme. It starts with praise. Look at it here. Pray like this, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven. Notice something about this prayer, the Lord's prayer. Our, us, we. Look at it. Do you see the words I, me, my? You don't. And it doesn't mean that you can't individually apply this text in your life. But what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that prayer ought to not just be for myself, but it ought to be a churchly prayer. It ought to be a prayer for one another that you're praying this not only for yourself, you're praying that for the body. This is a churchly prayer. The Lord's prayer is a churchly prayer that we ought to pray for one another. Our what? Our Father. Father, it's an intimate term. It's a relational term. It's a family term. And when we think spiritually about God the Father and us as children, it's also the theology of adoption because we're not naturally his children, are we? There's an adoption that takes place that he brings us into his family. And here's the deal. It's relational and it's deeply intimate. But it would be wrong, and and maybe I burst some bubbles here, but the word here is not Abba. That's not the word you see here. The word here is pater. 
and it's father. And the picture of it is this. It's grown children. It's mature adult children in relationship to their father, their heavenly father. So there's both intimacy in that relationship and there is reverence and there is fear. Do you see? That's a beautiful thing. Our father It's not just Jesus is my homeboy, he's really close, he's intimate. No, there's reverence in that statement. And if that's not enough, look at it. Our father, where is he? He's in heaven. The reason that that phrase is there is to make a distinction. He's not the father on earth, he's in heaven. He's perfect and he's in heaven, the perfect place. And maybe some of you, when you think about your earthly fathers or mothers, If you think about your earthly fathers, you have great thoughts. You have a wonderful earthly father, not perfect, but wonderful, who protects and cares and loves and is there for you. And maybe though you're in the room and you go, man, it's really hard for me to look at God through the lens of father because my relationship with my father is broken and he wasn't there And so when I think about God the Father, I have challenges built in as I think about God and my relationship to him because my earthly father was not what he should have been. But here's what you need to know. There's good news on both sides of that. I look around the room and I look at dads who desire, wholeheartedly desire to be great fathers and pursue care and protection and love for your children, who teach them well, and yet none of us compare. And oftentimes, fathers, we need to confess, confess up to areas in which we fall short, and as your kids get older, they know anyway. They see it anyway. And so continue to pursue that. And listen, if your father is someone who you don't have good imagery and it doesn't solicit Anything good that comes out of your mind as you think about God the Father. Here's what you also need to know. You also need to know that your heavenly Father protects better than your earthly Father. Who loves better, has more power and energy and goodness and kindness. He's more dependable. See, the God you pray to is miles and miles, the distance between heaven and earth, different from your earthly Father, whether it's good or bad. And that's a wonderful thing. With all the disappointments that might be in the room, either as a father or a son or daughter, he's the father who is in heaven. He is intimate, but he's also transcendent. That's a beautiful, beautiful truth. And as I think about the care of a father, I think about this missionary family in Brazil a number of years ago. And they took their family from the U.S. and they moved to Brazil as missionaries. And they noticed there were a lot of children who were on the streets without care, without a family, without a father and a mother. And they took a boy in. He was about a seven or eight-year-old boy in who had no parents and loved him and cared for him and even adopted him. And after a few years, this boy, he ran away. And they looked for him, and they couldn't find him. And years and years later, they were walking in the streets, and they saw him. And they ran over to him, 
And they begin to cry. And he began to cry. And they begin to talk. Why did you leave? We love you. We care for you. And he said this to them. I didn't think that I belonged. I didn't think, though you cared for me and you loved me, I was really welcome because I was an orphan. Can I ask you this morning, maybe, maybe some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you've had things in your life that have happened that are difficult and hard and unbearable. And maybe you don't say it, but maybe in your heart of hearts, you kind of feel like that adopted orphan boy. That you don't think you're welcome. That you don't think he cares. Maybe it's something you've done. How could he re receive me? Because I've done this. He cares. He loves. He welcomes you back. Are you praying like an orphan when you have a father and a family that loves you? See, that's what prayer is. It's simply talking and communication between the child of God and their heavenly father who is both transcendent and distant and perfect and close and near and love. But for some of you here, maybe there's not a relationship. There's not a connection. You are orphaned because you don't have a relationship with the Father. And I would tell you that He just bids you to come. He bids you to leave the streets that you're on and be cared for by Him and know Him through His Son. That's what I would encourage you in this morning. To know the Father who draws you in to His family and loves you and cares for you on the basis of His Son. But look at the text, it continues. So, our Father who art in heaven, there's a lot there. What's the next phrase, is it? Hey, our Father's in heaven, so now I'm going to get something. No, he shifts from that, doesn't he? It's not the applause of men, it's not the reward, it's not the reward I get from praying or the thing that I want. What does he say? Hallowed be your name. He doesn't turn to needs yet. Needs are coming. There are four petitions for our needs, and needs are a thing that you can take to God. Don't hear me not saying that. Is that a double negative? Sorry. Don't hear me saying that, okay? Well, prayer starts with praise. Hallowed be your name. You're like, hallowed? That's a weird word. Oh, we don't use that word anymore. Like the hallowed halls of your school or hallowed place. It's set apart. It's sacred. It's holy. That's what hallowed means. So Jesus is telling his disciples that the first lesson on the first day of Jesus' class about how to pray is to praise. Is give God the praise that he deserves because he's holy and he's perfect and he's sacred and he's set apart. And what's hallowed? His name. He is hallowed. He is holy. And here's the thing. He's just corrected the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel for their own needs and their own wants and their own reward. And he flips it around. And what you really need 
is to give God praise because it makes you more dependent upon Him. And realizing that the reward isn't something earthly, it's heavenly. The reward is Him. He's the reward, and He's a worthy reward. And then the next phrase, His kingdom come, not my kingdom come, His kingdom. That means He's the king, and we are citizens of His kingdom, and it's coming means there's some kind of conflict now, and it's also future. Jesus, he brings the kingdom, but it's clearly not yet. There's a kingdom. His kingdom come. Not my little kingdom. Not what my little kingdom wants. I pray those prayers. Also, his will be done. Not my will be done. His will be done. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. You ever prayed it? Your will be done, not mine. Jesus prayed it at the cross. And on earth as it is in heaven. You know, my tendency in prayer is just to want my kingdom, my little kingdom. My will, my time, my place. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, the message this morning is prayer is non-negotiable for us as it was for Jesus. The primary point this morning as we begin this series is that We need the air of heaven, and we need to give God praise. There's a true story, 2010. There's a teacher in Philadelphia teaching school, and she got a call from her neighbor, and the neighbor said, hey, there's a fire in your house. Teacher leaves the school, realizes on the way her husband's out of the house, her children are out of the house, the house, whether it burns down or not, the main things are out. She runs in this burning house. By the time she gets there, the house is almost completely in flames, and she goes into the house. She's got to get something. She races into the house. She doesn't go and get the safe. She doesn't go and get pictures or important papers like the fire insurance paper. She doesn't get photo albums. She doesn't get expensive jewelry or family heirlooms. She races into the house for the tickets to the Phillies game that night. They were sitting on the counter. And some of you guys are like, man, that's an awesome woman. And somehow this story got out, you know. The story got out, and the PR department for the Phillies got a hold of them. They're like, hey, we're going to do something with this. And so they made it this big story. School teacher runs into burning house, gets the tickets to the game. What a Phillies fan. Story on the news, but the HR department of the Phillies like, hey, we needed like a, a notice on the bottom of this deal. And it said, if you have season tickets or you have tickets to a Phillies game, we'll reprint them for you. Don't run in your burning house to get them. <laughs> Telling you that story because of some crazy misplaced priorities by this lady. She magnified something that was small in the face of something big. And we can be like that in our lives as well. We can misplace our priorities simply and easily. But when you think about magnifying something, the idea of magnification, students, you can help us with this. There's two ways to magnify something. You can magnify something with a microscope or a telescope. When you magnify something 
like in science class, with a microscope, you usually are taking something really, really, really small, and you're magnifying it, you're making it bigger because it's small. Telescope is different. Telescope, the thing about astronomy and the stars, you're really far away. And so your perception of what you're looking at is really small. But when you put it in the telescope, you see it for what it is. You see the right size of the object. See, we think about God, what we often do is we think God is really small or we treat him like a really small piece of our lives. And it's like we have to magnify him. But that's not how God works. God doesn't need be put in a microscope and magnify when we pull him out and we need him. Now, if we rightly see God for who he is and we hone in on who he actually is, he's really big and he's really glorious. And we see him for who he is. That's what magnifying the name of the Lord means. It doesn't mean taking something small and making it big. It means seeing him for who he is. And when you see God, for who he is, there is no other response but praise. There is no other response than dependence upon who he is and what he's done for you. Amen? So your takeaway this morning is this, C3. Express, express your dependence upon God in prayers of praise. I want to show you an example, and we'll close. You're going, what does that look like? The psalmist. Psalm 73, I think we have it. Asaph, this is the way he's, he expresses his praise and his dependence upon God. He says it this way, Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Dependence. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion, what I have, forever. That's dependence. That's praise. Let me pray.